Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and we're reading from verse 27. Let's hear the Word of God. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if we shall say, from man, well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased out to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed." And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. And as you can see at this point in the Gospel of Mark, which has been, I'm afraid, our studies in Mark have been rather disjointed, um, but you can listen to it from sermon audio if you want to catch up. But in this particular section, Jesus has entered the city. The triumphal entry is past. The fig tree has been cursed as a, a sign, an acted, an enacted parable, if you will. Jesus has cleansed the temple, and they've walked past the fig tree and noticed that it was, was withered, and Jesus explains the significance of it. Now, we, we're going to look at this conflict story. And the conflict story is linked to Jesus cleansing the temple in verse 15 of chapter 11. Uh, Matthew tells us 
that Jesus, or Mark tells us that Jesus was walking in the temple. Matthew tells us that Jesus was teaching in the temple. So he's walking and teaching as he walks, perhaps, or stopping and teaching a crowd in the temple, in the temple courts. And it's these words and deeds of Jesus, that is, the words, the teaching that he's giving in the temple, and the deeds entering into Jerusalem as he does, cursing the fig tree as he does, and causing it to wither, and then cleansing the temple. These actions of Jesus, along with his words, have created in the popular mind a sense of his authority. The ordinary people recognize that the religious leaders aren't able to do these things. And so Matthew, in his account, says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who has authority and not like the scribes. But having divine authority is one thing. Being anointed and authorized by the Holy Spirit and enabled by the Spirit to teach with authority is, is one thing. But being authorized by the official structures of Judaism, the hierarchy of the church, having their official authorization is a different thing altogether. And so they could argue, you see, that Jesus was not speaking for Judaism. He was not speaking for the church when he taught, no matter how much authority people recognized in the way he taught. But the way he'd been teaching and its reception by the people went against the official line held by the religious and theological gatekeepers of Judaism. You will know that there's, there's a procedure in every church, every denomination has its official statements of faith, its catechisms, its confessions of faith, and with Scripture as the supreme authority. We don't just let anyone teach. Popular theology and ethics sometimes gets a pass from the gatekeepers, even when it lacks substantive biblical support. So, even in a church that has a, a high ecclesiology and, uh, and theology and uh, has ways in which we were able to test and, uh, the, the, the quality of the people who are teaching, even in churches like that, people are teaching unofficially, and uh, whether they're doing it in their home or to groups in their home or for how, whatever they're doing it, they can set themselves up to be teachers uh, without the support, the ecclesial support of the church. Jesus was viewed by the authorities in that way. And so we read, as he was teaching and walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders came to him. These three groups of people, these were the three main parties within the Sanhedrin, the governing body of Judaism. All three groups are represented here, coming to speak to Jesus. That highlights for us how important and serious this matter is. And you can see the subject that's on their mind. By what authority are you doing these things? This is the main subject. You're doing these things. What things? Well, you're teaching and preaching, Luke suggests in his account. Not only are you preaching and teaching, you're teaching and preaching in the temple, in the temple grounds and in the temple closes. 
and you've been to the temple before and you cleansed the temple. You took a whip and you overturned the tables of those who were buying and selling and, and, uh, and you cleansed the temple. Well, nobody should be allowed to do that kind of thing. Where are the deacons when you need them to tackle people that do that? And then there was the entry into Jerusalem. As he rides into Jerusalem in the fall of the donkey, as he rides into the city, that attracted the attention of everybody. These actions, you see, could be interpreted, and the authorities knew this, they could be interpreted as an implicit claim to be a prophet or to be the Messiah himself. Since Messiah was a kingly figure, this would leave him and them open to charges of sedition. The Roman authorities would not tolerate anybody claiming to be the king. That's why, that's why Jesus himself avoids the term Messiah as much as possible in his ministry. It's also the reason why many wanted to ascribe to him the title Messiah during his ministry, because they thought the Messiah was going to be a kingly political figure. But these men, with this question about Jesus' authority, are not really coming as the, the police, as, a, as it were, of the temple. They have no pure motives. There is nothing pure about their motives. They really want to set a trap for Jesus. By what authority do you do this? If he answers them, well, by divine authority, of course. By divine authority. Well, he would be claiming to be the Messiah. The Messiah, as I've said, was a political military figure set on the overthrow of Rome, at least to the mind of people. These spies no doubt knew about Bartimaeus at the end of chapter 10, who'd been given his sight back, <clears throat> and the way in which <clears throat> Bartimaeus <clears throat> had addressed Jesus <clears throat> in the crowd. He had lifted up his voice and called Jesus several times over, Son of David, Son of David. Can you heal me? Can you heal me, Son of David? Son of David is a messianic title. And when he called Jesus, Jesus did not stop and say, my boy, well, it's probably a man. Don't call me son of David. That has political overtones and will get me into trouble. I'm not a son of David. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke Bartimaeus. Rather, he receives it rather than rebukes it. And they would have heard, these authorities would have heard that this same theme was picked up by the crowds as Jesus is greeted by the people coming into the city. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. All of that is in the background to their question. Now, the response to the question is going to negate the question that they ask. But let me just add in here that asking questions is a good thing. You should always ask questions. If you have a question about the sermon you don't understand, ask somebody else but, or ask me, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll explain what, what, it, what it means. Asking questions is a good thing. It's a means by which we expand our knowledge. 
But asking question, of course, depends on how we ask the question and why we ask the question. These religious leaders were not wanting Jesus to teach them theology. They, these religious leaders were not interested, really, in what Jesus would say. They wanted, really, to trip him up, to get him to say something by which they could charge him with sedition or treason and hand him over to the authorities. They were already putting around the idea that he was a pretender, an imposter. And I want you to note the Lord's reply. He replies with a counter question. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, this is Jesus' usual tactic. He, is, he does not make plain statements about his own person publicly in the Gospels. He avoids that as much as possible. And he does so simply because this loaded word, Messiah, this loaded word, Christ, has such political overtones, which in a climate of being uh, under the authority of Rome would have been a, a, just a, a, a rabbit hole. He didn't want people going down that rabbit hole of thought. And so that's why he asked the question, what about the baptism of John? John the Baptist, you, you know, was very famous. He was very popular with the people. By referring to John's baptism, it's a kind of catch-all word for everything that John did, his prophetic ministry, his preaching ministry, his baptizing ministry. The question was whether John was a real prophet or a true prophet, and that was relevant, relevant to the question they'd asked Jesus about his authority. John proclaimed himself to be the prophetic forerunner of the Messiah. He quoted from Isaiah that his role was to prepare the way of the Lord. As Dick France puts it, John had begun the Reformation movement among the Jewish people to which Jesus was the obvious heir, the heir of the work of John the Baptist. And even John's baptism, in his own words, was an anticipation of and a preparation for the more effective baptism that was going to be introduced by the stronger one, the greater one, the mightier one than he, he was. And so, their verdict on John and his message was linked to their view of Jesus. If they accepted Jesus' authority, they must, uh, John's authority, they must accept Jesus' authority as being the one greater, the one who John said would be the baptizer in spirit, not just in water. The one Jesus had identified, uh, that John had identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who was before him, eternally before him. John had said all of these things about Jesus. He had said that he wasn't even worthy to have his sandals uh, to, to, to take Jesus' sandals off, far less to baptize him. And, of course, John was present at the baptism of Jesus where the Spirit, the Father's voice was heard, the Spirit descends like a dove upon the Son of God. So we, we read that they discussed it with one another. 
If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe, John? But if we say from man, the people will be up in arms because they really believe that John was a prophet of God. So this is the issue that, uh, that is raised here and uh, serves as a were to, to uh, paint the picture of the background to the parable that Jesus will tell in what we have as chapter 12. Uh, these men were deliberately ignorant. The root of the trouble lay not in their intellect, but in their stubborn will. They did not want to see the truth. They'd hardened their hearts against it. They'd heard it from John the Baptist. They'd seen the effects of his work. And they'd watched Jesus now for three years, performing all these miracles and saying all these things. And you know, one of the reasons why you, maybe someone here this evening, doesn't get Jesus, doesn't grasp the joy of what it means to live with a, as a Christian, Maybe the reason is that, like these religious leaders, you're refusing to submit them yourself and your will to Him, to Him. So Jesus then could have asked them to confess their blindness, but they wouldn't, and they wouldn't have asked for sight. They refuse to allow Jesus in. And it's at this point then that Jesus tells them the parable of the tenants, or perhaps better, the parable of the owner's son. Since the focus of the parable is on the one whom the vineyard owner sent last of all. So there's a progression in the story. And it's quite straightforward. A man turns over a plot of his land to, uh, into a fully equipped vineyard. He rents it out to some farmers and waits for the four years necessary before the vines begin to bear grapes in year five. And uh, on year five, he expects that the vine, the vine now will be productive and there will be profit. Uh, so far, he's been out of sight and out of mind. And the servants uh, who are working in the, in the vineyard have become a bit self-absorbed. And now when the servants come to collect the income, they are mistreated and sent packing. The tenants don't want to part with uh, what had become for them a profitable venture. They're now acting as if they owned the place. And so eventually the owner sends his son. Now you can see, if you look at some of these elements, you can see that what, what, is, what is the vineyard? Is the vineyard the world? and other people who are responsible for nurturing the vineyard and, and tilling the ground and caring for it and so on and making a profit from it, are they people, generally people, humanity in general? Well, you could look at it from that point of view, and I think that's a legitimate way to say, yes, that is precisely what has gone wrong. The world was given to men and women, to people, in order that they might manage it, care for it, look after it, tend it, and give glory to God for it. And what have we done? Well, we've abused the world that God gave to us. We've abused it, and we've not acknowledged that every good and perfect gift comes from God. 
above. But a principal application of this parable is to Israel. It is to Israel. Israel was a garden that God gave to his people. It was to be a a faint echo of the Garden of Eden that God gave to Adam and Eve when they were first created. Israel was a garden. They were to nurture it. They're reminded every time they went into the tabernacle and later the temple with all the plants that were carved into the stone that that, uh, the natural world, the natural world that God has given us is a temple in which God is to be worshipped. And these religious leaders, these religious leaders were responsible at the tail end of an entire movement, a shift within Israel over centuries where God was really, well, we worship God in the temple. But God, as a living reality, is no longer a living reality to the people. And they've become institutionalized. There's nothing worse than a church in which there are people in influence in the church who have been there so long, they're part of the furniture because they no longer see with clarity the things that need to be addressed within the life of a church. They've institutionalized. These people within Judaism, they were institutionalized. Well, all these servants who came represented the prophets. One after another, God had sent to Israel his servants, the prophets. And what had they done? They had killed them. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. They'd killed them. Most of the prophets had been killed by their own people, Israel. My servants, the prophets. And so it is not to be a surprise to us that if the Son who is sent by the Father, that's who loved by the Father, comes to do his bidding and receive what is duly his, they take the Son. They do damage to him. They take him outside the vineyard and they kill him there. Well, it was a fatal mistake, of course. Soon the forces of justice are put in place and put into action. They are evicted and the land is given to others. That was going to literally happen in Palestine. So the Lord Jesus does not miss them and hit the wall. They would immediately, with, as they're listening to this story, they'll be thinking to themselves, you know, we've heard that story before. We've heard that story way back in the prophecy of Isaiah. He's one of the prophets God sent to them. In Isaiah chapter 5, let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, 
built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And then it goes on to explain the, the picture. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. They should have seen this, this revelation to them. The, the religious leaders then especially would have applied that, would have recognized that that parable was being applied to them. They realized that Jesus was referring to the prophets God had sent to Israel. Some of these prophets were killed simply because of the message they brought. In Second Chronicles chapter 24 and verses 20 and 21, here's what we read. Uh, by one of the, the prophets. Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed, clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and he said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Israel had done this. This was their approach to things. But God in his grace has gracious purposes in all of this. And above all, the Son of God is handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles to be crucified. Now, a couple of lessons then to learn from this. I say a couple, probably more. First of all, the importance of fruitfulness. These men in the parable are stewards of the resources God has given to them. We must apply that, I think, as Christians to the natural world and to the way in which the lens through which we understand our own Christian account of environment and environmentalism. We have a particular view of the environment that stems from the way in which God made the world and gave authority to man to manage it in a righteous way for the good of other people. But in terms of the church, God is looking for the management of His gifts to the church. And he's looking for fruitfulness. The first in the line of gifts there is repentance when we turn from sin to him. From going our own way, we turn to make him the Lord of our lives. Or it applies to the way we grow as Christians. As our character is changed, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on, are produced within us the fruit of the Spirit. Or the church as an organization. Is the church as an, as an organization bearing fruit to God? Or is it dead wood? Are its members merely passing the time 
is their ignorance of their doctrines and the belief of the church? Is worldliness uppermost in the life of its people? Is there a spiritual deadness within the church? All of these questions. There is a, an importance to spiritual fruitfulness. The second lesson we learn from here is the nature of sin. Notice how Jesus underlines the fact that these people go from bad to worse in their history. There's this ascending scale of atrocity in the behavior of the tenants towards the master's servants, culminating in the destruction of the heir himself. There is something inherent in fallen human nature, in the nature of sin itself. All throughout history, opposition to God is never a static thing. It is dynamic, restless, growing, and always culminating in a crisis. There is a momentum to evil that carries it out with human control altogether and gives it and uh, gets it careering on to its final end, carrying its victims with it. The importance of fruitfulness and the nature of sin, then the patience of God. This is one of the most improbable things about this parable. Yes, there's something improbable about this parable. And it's, it's something that no businessman you know would likely tolerate. He would not tolerate the kind of behavior from their employees that this owner does. And we're meant to see that. And we're meant to see what that means. It means that this is how God acts towards us. He kept sending, kept sending people. Verse 2, he sent a servant. Verse 4, he sent another servant. Verse 5, again he sent another. Verse 6, he sent another. Over and over and over again, God is sending people to these to these Jews and to these, this church of the Jews. He says to Israel through Jeremiah, day after day, again and again, I sent you, my servants, the prophets. They rejected them, and God keeps sending them. And if you follow the meaning of that sequence of sending, you'll appreciate the significance then of the final sending. What an amazing history of the mercy of God. Uh, Matthew simply tells the fact that this was the final sending. Luke emphasizes that this was a deliberate act of God. Mark underlines the preciousness of the gift. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. Even to the extent of permitting rebellious subjects, taking his dearly loved son and killing him. And Matthew and Luke tell us that he was thrown out of the vineyard and killed outside. As we read in Hebrews chapter 13, he's killed outside the city wall, outside the civilized world of the city. Perhaps a point of a more general nature needs to be made here. 
and that is that God is patient with you and with me. He's patient with us up to the point when we finally reject His Son. That's where His patience ends. When we finally and completely and intentionally and without any coming back from this moment, reject His Son. That is the unpardonable sin. To die rejecting Jesus. But over our lives again and again, He comes to us. He presses His claims upon us. And at a particular point, He may approach us specially in a specially real way so that we're faced with a choice. And it may be that you're here this evening and that's the moment for you. This is the moment for you. Well, the fourth application is the, the exaltation of Jesus in verses 10 and 11. Have you not read the Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's a quotation from Psalm 118 with which we, we began this evening. It's very interesting that Psalm 118 has been in play uh, in the gospel at a variety of points. For example, it plays a role in Jesus' triumphal entry as the crowds use the language of uh, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. I can get, get, find a, my little procedure here. Verse 25 and 26 Save us, O Lord. That's what they're crying out when they say, Hallelujah, save us. Save us, or Hosanna rather. Save us, we pray. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They'd use that language as Jesus came in to the city. The Sanhedrin knew that psalm very well. It was sung every day during the lead up to the Passover. And then linking Psalm 118, verses 23 to 25, uh, with the events located in this parable that Jesus tells. Let me read you verses 22 to 25. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. This is the day the Lord has made. Save us, O Lord, we pray. O Lord, give us success. This psalm is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The one who's been rejected becomes the cornerstone. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day of resurrection. This is the day of his triumph. And embedded in the psalm, do you notice, embedded in the psalm is this word rejection, the rejection of the stone referring to Jesus. It was Jesus himself who used that word from Psalm 118 in his first prediction, Mark 8, verse 31, his first prediction of his coming death. He began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be killed, and after three days to rise. There's a symmetry between those two uses of the word. In both, Jesus speaks of his rejection and death at the hands of the threefold grouping of Jerusalem's religious authorities. 
But also there's the promise of resurrection. It's implicit back in chapter 8, 31, or explicit there, should I say. And it's implicit here in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Mark 12 says all of this is foreshadowed by the words of Psalm 118. Jesus deliberately shows the link between Scripture prophecy and His ministry and His final fulfillment. All that man can do in the end is to behold the work of God here in the ministry of Jesus, to behold the work of God and the explanation Jesus gives to these events and be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Jesus should do this for us, that He should allow wicked men to challenge Him as they do, that He should allow wicked men to persecute His prophets whom He sent, that He should allow wicked men to do Him to death. Well, for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, It's remarkable, isn't it? And it gives us cause as we come to the table to handle things unseen, to take the bread and the wine and realize that we are handling by faith something hidden from our eye. We're handling Christ Himself who offers Himself in the sacrament that we might feed on Him in our hearts by faith and be strengthened by Him and know as we see that bread broken that he was broken for me. And in the cup with wine representing his blood, the separation of blood from his body speaks of violent sacrificial death. He died violently and sacrificially for me, for you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we bow before you, we thank you for the fact that the Lord Jesus himself has paid the price for our salvation so that it's free at the point of delivery to me, to us, and to the one you're speaking to in this room tonight particularly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.